happy Father's Day. That's for all of you. Whether you're a dad or not, I want you to have a happy day today. So happy Father's Day. But I want to say specifically to the bio dads, the step dads, the spiritual fathers, regardless of your particular set of circumstances, if you are a father figure to anyone in the world, I want you to know how thankful we are for you. We see you, we appreciate you, we love you for the things that you do and for who you are. I want us to really celebrate dads today. Make them feel awkward with how much you're lavishing them with love and attention and affection to the best of your ability. Now, even though it is Father's Day, the passage that I've chosen to preach on has no dads in it, which I know it's kind of weird. There's a couple of women in this story. And when you think of Father's Day sermons, you would typically think of preaching, I don't know, like Ephesians 4 or something, maybe something from the life of David with a few Braveheart references thrown in for good measure, you know? Um, That's typically what we think of. But as I was doing my study and prepping for today, I came across this story and I just thought, you know what, regardless of whether you have a Y chromosome or not, You need to hear this. This is a very powerful and helpful set of verses. And the reason that it's so powerful and helpful is because this passage is going to remind us that even if we win at life, if we don't win at the things that really matter, we've actually lost. Are you with me? You can win at life according to one scorecard and lose according to the scorecard that really matters. Okay, if that applies to you, or let's see if it applies to you by reading Luke chapter, chapter number 10, okay? Funny enough, this is the exact same chapter that we were in last week. I hadn't planned that, but here you go. We're preaching expository today, okay? Luke chapter number 10, we're gonna start reading these verses in uh, verse 38. The scripture says, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So Martha is one of the two characters in this story. Okay, there are two main ones. We'll discover the other one in just a moment. And of course, there's Jesus. He's kind of the main character in every story. We aren't told how Martha and Jesus met, but in some way, Jesus came to their town, which was called Bethany, and he was preaching and performing miracles. And she probably heard the buzz and went out and met him, and then she invited Jesus to come back to her home. Now, that was the right and honorable thing to do, okay, in her world. If you meet a stranger out, you know, somewhere, a Deerfoot City maybe, you're probably not going to invite them to dinner tonight. You might, but usually in our world, we're not quite as hospitable, okay? But in the first century, hospitality was a huge thing. They lived in a kind of a shame and honor culture, and so it was expected that if you met somebody that didn't have a place for dinner, that you were going to invite them to your house. And so uh, Martha meets Jesus and she finds out that he's just passing on through. And she says, hey, do you have dinner plans? And he says, well, I was going to go to Chick-fil-A, but it's Sunday and they're closed. And so why don't I instead, there was no Chick-fil-A anyway. So she said, come to my house. And he said, okay, great. I'm going to finish up here and I'll be at your house a little later. I just kind of imagine that as Martha was walking home, she thinks to herself, did I just invite the son of God over to my house for dinner? You can imagine that Martha was starting to feel a lot of pressure when she started thinking about like having Jesus 
at her dinner table. Like, she wanted to make sure that lasagna was good, guys. She went home, she put her best recipe to work, she did absolutely everything she could. Now, we're going to learn in just a, a moment that Martha had a brother named Lazarus, and she had a sister named Mary. And I just think Martha got home, and she's like, guys, we got to get to work, okay? Lazarus, go fix that leaky toilet. You've been talking about doing it forever. Go get it done. Mary, start sweeping the dining room. Jesus is coming. Verse 39, Jesus shows up, and verse 39, the Bible tells us that her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. Now, there are a couple of layers to this detail here, okay? We're going to discover one of them in a moment, but the one that's probably lost on us is that culturally, at this time, women did not sit and learn at the feet of rabbis. You understand that? Um, Rabbis taught men, and women stayed in the kitchen making sandwiches. Now, I'm not saying that that's the way it should be. That was sexist and wrong. I'm just telling you that was the world that existed in the first century. And so when Mary sits down at the feet of Jesus and he is teaching her at the same time and in the same way that he's teaching men, this would have been scandalous. Like this would have been, like this would have been the talk of the town after everybody found out what was going on. In fact, it was so subversive that it might have even been um, upsetting to Mary's family. Maybe even her sister or her cousins were like, you shouldn't be doing that, Mary. You don't belong there. That's not your place. Maybe that's why in verse 40 we read, Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. So catch the picture now. We got two ladies, got Mary over here sitting quietly, listening to Jesus teach, even though she's not supposed to be doing that. And then you've got Martha, who's in the kitchen, and she's working like crazy, distracted, trying to put this meal together, doing what her culture told her was the right thing to do. I can just imagine Martha rushing frantically around the kitchen, you know what I mean? Working at the stove, and then running over here to the sink, and then over here to the dishwasher, and whatever else it is she was doing. I don't even know how dinners work. But anyway, she's doing all this stuff. You could just imagine how chaotic and frenzied and hurried and rushed it was that Martha felt. In fact, the Greek word that's used to describe her here in this passage is turbazo, turbazo, which is where we get the English word turbulent. So what, the, what this verse is telling us is that Martha was turbulent in the moment. Like she was being pushed and pulled in a thousand different directions. She was all chaotic and, and really worked up focusing on doing the right thing, focused on presenting a good meal to Jesus. And of course, this was while her sister Mary was like just chilling in the living room with Jesus, not doing anything, all right? Okay. So verse 40, Martha came to Jesus and she said, Lord, does it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. Okay, there's a part of me that can understand Martha's frustration here, okay? There's a part of me that gets it. I would be a little frustrated too if my sibling were not contributing, not pulling their weight and stuff. But how cringy is it to start bickering with your sibling in front of the guests? Especially when the guest is Jesus. You know what I'm saying? How awkward is it to invite the Messiah to weigh in on your petty sibling rivalry? Okay, everybody, all the disciples were like, oh my gosh, could we have not found another dinner someplace? Like, this is where we ended up. It must have been so crazy awkward. If I'm honest, Amber and I have done this before in staff meetings where like, you know, we'll be having a conversation and then, you know, the, the, we're, I'm arguing what I think is a good point. She's arguing what she thinks is a good point. And the staff were like, hey, what do you guys think? And they're like, no way, dude. I am no, no, 
I'm not weighing in on this, okay? So like, you know it's awkward when that moment happens. You've all been there, and this is precisely what's going on here for these ladies. Okay, last two verses in the passage, and I'm gonna tell you why we're reading this on Father's Day. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha. In the original language, he just says, Martha, Martha. He repeats her name, it's endearment. He's not chastising her. He's not angry at her. He wants her to know that he loves her and she's missed the mark and so he wants to help her. He says, my dear Martha, you're worried and upset. You're turbazzo, you're turbulent. You're being tossed in a million different directions right now over all these details. But there's only one thing worth being concerned about. The word there is a a different word. There's only one thing that's needed. There's only one thing that's necessary tonight. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. So again, it might seem like Jesus is rebuking her, but he's not. He's trying to get her to open her eyes and see things. She believes that she has to make the perfect meal for Jesus because he's Jesus. And because there are these cultural expectations, this is what you do. You have to do a good job. You have to prove that you are a hospitable person and, and things like that. But I think Jesus' response to her might show us that although it seems like she's concerned with honoring Jesus, it might also be possible, hey, even likely, that she's concerned with Jesus honoring her, okay? So uh, the expectation is she's going to treat him well as the guest, but it might be that she's so worked up about all of this because she wants Jesus to say, wow, Martha, that was a real good meal. Like, wow, you should be so impressed, okay? I think she's more concerned about receiving honor than giving honor honor. So when Jesus responds to her, he's essentially saying, do you really think you need to work yourself into a frenzy over this? Do you really think you need to be so turbulent and tossed and pushed and pulled in all of these different directions? Hey, girl, I'm sure your macaroni salad is delish, okay? But I have literally eaten manna from heaven. It's not going to compare, all right? He's saying to her, maybe spending time with me would be more beneficial than anything you could do for me. Maybe spending time with me could be more beneficial than anything you could do for me. Now, what's super interesting is the story, it just ends here. Like, it doesn't resolve. We're not really told what happens next. Like, does Martha go back into the kitchen or does she sit down next to Jesus? Did he get to eat dinner that night? We have no clue. What exactly did he mean when he said there's only one thing worth being concerned about, Mary, and Mary is the one who discovered it? We're not explicitly told these things. And part of the reason the Bible does this, you'll find this all the time where it's like, okay, so what's the point? Like, what are you trying to say here, Jesus? And it's like, the point is you're supposed to figure it out. You're supposed to wrestle with it. You're supposed to like meditate on it. Consider like, what did Jesus mean? Why did he tell Martha not to be so concerned with doing what culture told her to do and instead spending time with him? You're supposed to think about what this story means and how it might play out in your life as well. So I wanna ask you this morning, are you more like Mary or Martha? Um, men, I know that's kind of weird to put yourself in that position. I get it, I get it, I get it. But I want you to ask yourself, maybe independent of the characters of the story, am I living a life of peace or am I living a life that is turbulent? Am I living a life that is pushed and pulled in every direction imaginable? Do I constantly feel chaotic and worn down and unable to cope and deal with the pressures of my life? 
I want to point out kind of three truths from this passage this morning, and I'm going to relate them primarily to men and dads, but listen, you're going to see this applies to all of us, okay? Every single one of us need to recognize these principles from the passage. So the first thing I want you to know is that this story is a reminder that busyness is not an indicator of success. Busyness is not an indicator of success. Martha was super busy, okay? But Jesus called her to examine her busyness and to ask, what's it really accomplishing? Is this the busyness, all the work, all the effort, all the chaos and and energy that you're expending right now, is it what's actually necessary? Or are you being worked up by a bunch of details that in the end don't really matter? Like I mentioned a moment ago, Martha was winning according to her culture scorecard. She was doing everything that was expected of a person in her situation. She was playing a good hostess. She was working hard. I have no doubt she was giving, the, giving, the Jesus, giving Jesus the very best of everything she had. She was winning according to her cultural scorecard, but Jesus told her she was losing according to heaven's scorecard. I think there are a lot of people in our world today, maybe even some of you that are here, and you are in the same situation. Like there's this pressure to work 60 hours a week, guys, and to earn and to provide for your family. Like we're told primarily that's what dads do. They go out, they hunt, they bring home the bacon, you know, that sort of thing, right? And we measure the worth of a man by what he produces or what he earns or according to kind of this cultural masculine standard. Then we've got social media, and it paints this picture of people who have it all, and they can do it all, and we look at that, and we're like, oh, that's not me. I'm not that guy. I guess I'm supposed to be, but I'm not. And so we end up feeling inadequate. We end up feeling like we're behind everybody else, and so we push harder. We experience more turbulence. We're kind of tossed in more directions now. You add in politics and a pandemic, and listen, our lives are very busy, They're very active, but I'm afraid they aren't accomplishing very much. There are a lot of men who seem like they're working hard, but actually you're just experiencing a bunch of turbulence. It's a bunch of frenetic energy, but it's not actually getting you any closer to where God wants you to be. Well, there's some ladies that are that way too. There's some teenagers, there's some pastors that are doing the same thing. This is why Jesus asked, verses here on the screen, what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What good would that be? Fellas, what good is building a business that destroys your family? If you build a business and lose your family in the process, you may have won by a cultural scorecard, but you have lost according to eternity scorecard. Should you trade your peace for a slightly larger paycheck? Like, I know, like, listen, the boss offers you a raise. It's like, yes, absolutely, I want it. But like, do you? If it's gonna take you away from your family significant amounts of time, if it's gonna cause you so much stress that the time you do spend with your family is worthless, should you make that trade? What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Guys, why do you need a drink or an edible or a one-night stand in order to cope with the pressures of your life? Why? Ask yourself. Maybe it's because you weren't meant to live under those pressures. Maybe your life was not meant to be as turbulent as it actually is. 
Maybe the words of Jesus to Martha are the words that men in 2022 really need to be confronted with. Busyness is not an indicator of success. So don't buy into that lie. See, here's the problem we really need to address, and it's this. We spend our lives chasing rather than following. We spend our lives chasing rather than following. Every person on the planet, every man, every woman, every boy and girl, even those tiny little cute ones we saw on stage a moment ago, every person on the planet is created for the purpose of following after Jesus. That's the goal. He's the leader. I'm the follower. He sets the destination. He sets the route. He sets the pace. He's the one that tells me when to get moving. That's how we were designed. We are supposed to be following after him. But our culture tells us and tells particularly men, no, you're not a follower, bro. You're a leader. You're the captain of your ship. You have your own compass. You don't need to follow Jesus. You don't need to follow what the Bible says. You need to decide what's right and good, set your own destination, set your own pace, and go chase after whatever seems right to you. But here's the trick that our culture pulls. The whole time that they're telling us to choose for ourselves what's best, they're simultaneously telling us what's best. You realize this, right? The narrative is you are your own person. You need to discover the true you, follow your heart, and you will be happy and fulfilled in life. And at the same time, the people who are telling you that are trying to sell you the things that they think are going to make you happy. There's a conflict of interest. They're telling you, you decide. And when we decide, guess what? We end up looking exactly like our culture tells us to look. We drive the same cars. We dress in the same clothes. We listen to the same music. We want to go on vacation in the exact same places. We hold the same values as everybody else in the world. Do you see the trick they're pulling here? They're telling us, don't be a follower. And then they're dangling stuff in front of us so that we chase after it. Do you realize in both situations you're following? The question is, are you following somebody that's leading you to a place you want to go to? Are you winning according to a scorecard that really matters? Or are you winning? And then you get to the end of your life and you're like, boy, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have invested more in my relationship with God. I wish I would have loved my wife a bit better. Busyness is not an indicator of success. Following Jesus is the mark of success. Chasing after what the world tells you will make you a man, that's not an indicator of success. And I'm I'm afraid that we have bought into this lie that if I can just achieve, if I can just produce, if I can just be like what all these other men are, that because we bought into that, we are going to end up losing the things that really matter. You can win at culture scorecard or you can win at heaven's scorecard. And I want you to win at heaven's, the eternal one. That's the one that's really going to matter. It's the one actually that will make you the happiest in the long run. Okay, so busyness is not a good indicator of success. Secondly, Martha reminds us, her story reminds us, just because I think I'm right doesn't mean that I am. (laughs) Just because I think I'm right does not mean that I am. Martha knew deep down in her soul when she brought this situation to Jesus' attention. She knew, she just knew that Jesus was gonna say, girl, you are right. Mary, what are you doing? This is not your place. Get in the kitchen. Make me a sandwich, all right? She knew Jesus was gonna say that, except he didn't. She knew that her perspective on this was the right one, except it wasn't. 
Martha was what we call confidently incorrect. You, you ever been around somebody who is confidently incorrect? Like, they are sure they're right and everybody knows they're wrong. These are the people who will double down on their mistake. You show them, you Google it, and it's like, oh, well, no, that because, you know, confidently incorrect. And listen, everybody can be confidently incorrect. Christians, you can absolutely be confidently incorrect. Lost people, non-Christians, you can be confidently incorrect as well. The world is full of people who cannot imagine that their perspective might not be right or that it's at least incomplete. And the tragedy of this is that because we won't entertain the idea that we might be winning at the wrong stuff in life, because we just couldn't imagine that we're wrong. Like, no, 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 of course I'm supposed to earn a lot of money. Of course I'm supposed to get promoted until I'm in the C-suite. Of course I'm supposed to take all these amazing vacations even though I can't afford them. Of course I'm supposed to look this way. Of course I'm supposed to have these things. Because we, cannot, we cannot bring ourselves to question whether that's actually right. We spend our whole lives pursuing them only to get to the end and to say, wow, those did not end up satisfying me the way that I thought they would. I thought once I got those things, everything was going to be all right, and it's not. This is, again, why it's important to consider the words of Jesus, Luke 7, 35. He said this, wisdom is revealed by what it produces. How do you know if you're living a good life? How do you know if you're living wisely? Look at what it's producing. If your marriage is failing, or hey, you're not married, but you're having relationships and none of them seem to be working out, then you're not living wisely because wisdom is justified by the things that it produces. It's proven right by its results. Financially, if life's a mess, spiritually, you're getting further and drifting further away from God, all of those are really strong indicators that you might be playing to the wrong scorecard. You might be trying to win at things that ultimately won't matter. Chasing the world produces people whose lives are turbulent and overwhelming like Martha's, but following Jesus, it'll produce lives that are world-changing and peaceful. This is what God wants for you. This is, this is the scorecard. Did you live with peace? Did you honor God? Did you love your family and serve God through the church? Like these are the marks that God's looking for in men. It's like super simple, but we can't bring ourselves to try to live for that scorecard or live for those standards because it's really hard to acknowledge that we might not be right. This is true, like, you know, this big um, metaphysical, like, philosophy and worldview. This is also true, like, with the stuff you post on Facebook. Okay, can I just say that? Um, just because I think I'm right does not mean that I am right, but anyway. Okay, so one good thing that Martha did was she brought herself to Jesus, and she asked him, does this seem right? Does this seem right? Her motives were off. Like, she thought she knew the answer that, that Jesus was going to give, but at least she was willing to go and ask, does this seem right? Now, here's what's great about this, Okay. The way that Jesus, the things that Jesus said to her, I told you that we, we don't know how the story ends, but actually we kind of do know what ends up happening after this because this is not the last time that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus end up appearing in the Bible. So this is Luke chapter number 10. If we were to jump into John chapter number 11, we find out there's an instance sometime after this dinner in which Lazarus gets very sick and then he dies. And Jesus comes to his house again after he's already dead and he performs one of his greatest miracles recorded in the Gospels. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if you read closely John chapter number 11, you discover he raised Lazarus from the dead on account of Martha's faith. 
Now, in, in Luke 10, Mary's the hero of the story, right? She's the one who's like, teach me, Jesus. You know, I'm not concerned about all of this. I just want you in your presence. You know, she's the hero of the story. Then we get to Luke chapter number, uh, John chapter number 11, excuse me, and we find out, the Bible actually records this for us, Mary is so grief-stricken, in fact, she's so upset for Jesus taking his sweet time to get to their house to deal, to, to deal with their brother that she wouldn't even go outside to greet him. Martha actually goes out to meet Jesus in the front yard, and oh, she's got questions, and she's got grief, but she goes to him and she says, Lord, she acknowledges him as the Lord. And she says, you've still got the power to do this. And then we're told Martha goes back into the house and drags Mary's sullen little backside out to see Jesus. Okay, so check this now. That means that something happened in Martha between Luke 10 and John 11, between the dinner and the resurrection. The words of Jesus actually changed her. The things that he showed her in just those few short sentences were enough to flip the script on her life so that she was no longer living for the things she used to live for. She wasn't trying to win according to the scorecard that she used to play for. It's totally different. So I think we've got to be willing to do what Martha did. Guys, you've got to be willing to bring your life to Jesus and say, does this seem right? Does this seem right? Jesus, what do you think when you see me? Am I, am I giving myself to things that really matter? Or am I wasting the resources, the time, the relationships that you've given me? Does this seem right? It's what Mary did and it changed her life. Flipped her scorecard. It's what you've got to do as well, man. I know. You think you're right. You think you're pursuing the things that matter. But just because I think I'm right doesn't mean that I am right. Jesus is the one who can tell us whether or not we're actually right. Okay, last point, and I'm done. Last thing about this story is it teaches us that activity cannot replace intimacy in a relationship. Activity cannot replace intimacy in a relationship. Uh, we see this with, with Mary, uh, Martha, I'm sorry. She's so busy, so much activity, but Jesus is calling her to intimacy. He's calling her, like, spend time with me. There's only one thing that you need. There's only one thing. The only thing that's important tonight is that you are in my presence, you know how much I love you, and you surrender to me as your Lord. That's it. That's all that matters. Don't worry about winning according to all those other scorecards you've been told. There's one thing that matters. Your activity cannot replace intimacy. So in your relationship with God, there is going to be this danger to think, well, I'm doing a lot for God, so he must be happy. I must be close to him, right? No, 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 no. Um, I've got John chapter number 15 there. He says, abide, Jesus says, abide in me. Um, as a branch cannot bear fruit without abiding in the vine, you can't bear fruit without abiding in me. So his point here is like, your activity isn't, isn't the issue. It's your closeness, your fellowship, your intimacy with God. That's what really matters. Hey, in an even scarier passage later in the book of Matthew, Jesus says on judgment day, there are gonna be people that stand before him and they're gonna say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? Did we not cast out many demons? I mean, they're going to speak in King James English, I promise you, okay? And you know what Jesus is going to say to them? Your activity masked the fact that you had no intimacy. He'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Not, you didn't do great things for me. You built an amazing church. You, you created a thriving business. 
You had all the outward trappings of what matters, but you lost according to heaven's scorecard. And so we've got to recognize, guys, that like activity is not a substitute for intimacy in our relationship with God. Don't ever believe that what you do for God is the point. Time with God is the point. Now, I'm not saying like, don't ever do anything for God. If you're on the dream team, please don't quit, okay? <laughs> Man, I preached this whole series on margin. You remember this a month or two ago? And I got like six people and it's like, Dan, I just, I took what you said to heart, man. And so I'm going to have to take a step back. I just need a little more room. Don't do that to me. That's not the, uh, okay. You do, you do what the Holy Spirit's telling you to do in this moment. Genuinely, genuinely. Hey, what's true of your relationship with God is also true of your relationship with your kids, your wife, your girlfriend, your brothers and sisters, your coworkers. Activity cannot replace intimacy in a relationship. I wanna encourage you dads, don't get so busy doing things for your family that you never spend time with your family. Like it's awesome that you go out and work and and provide and bring home the bacon. And you know, we love that about you, okay? We do. But can I just tell you, your kids will be better in the long run if you spend quality time with them instead of earning more money and buying them more crap. It's it's the way of things. Um, Ask yourself the question, do you know your kids? Like, really, do you know them? Do you know who they are growing up to be? When, when, when you get home and they get home, are you like, so, you know, tell me about your day. And that's it. That's as deep as the conversation goes. Like, what happened to you today? Like, who are they becoming? What are the, what are the, the issues that they're struggling with? What is God saying to them? get to know them on a deeper level, like an intimate level. You know, the, the, the old cliche is that men bond shoulder to shoulder and not face to face. And there's some truth to that. Listen, with your family, get over it. You got to be face to face. You got to be eyeball to eyeball with your wife. You got to be eyeball to eyeball with your kids because activity can't replace intimacy. The, the, the scorecard that you should be grading yourself on, the scorecard your wife is going to be grading you on, the scorecard your kids are going to be grading you on is not how busy you were on behalf of the family. It's how present you were with the family. So listen, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to step on your toes. That's God's job. And so if it happened, it's him, not me. Listen, my job, my job, my job is to show you that at the end of your life, you will be graded. There will be a scorecard. So the question is, are you going to work for that scorecard, that grade, those marks, or Are you going to chase what the world tells you you're supposed to be doing? By the way, it's the world that's like miserable and super unhappy with their life. And like, you know, every relationship's falling apart and they're all in debt and going bankrupt. And like, they hate themselves and they drink too much. And like, it doesn't have to be that way. Guys, your life doesn't have to be that turbulent. It wasn't meant to be. God has something different in store for you. The question is whether or not you're going to come to him and say, hey, God, does this seem right? And whatever isn't right help me to change it. If you'll do that, promise you, things will get much, much better.